So we have a challenge. It's not so contemporary as you think. We, I know we all like to think that the world's gotten worse and worse and we hear about it in wars. Man, our wars today don't even compare to the wars of the biblical era. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, there is a sense in which it gets more modern. But we have a not-so-contemporary challenge. By the way, there are handouts in there if you want to pull it out. And I'm also, you can help, you can kind of follow it with me here. You know, Paul complained in Romans, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In our paradigm, that's a way of saying they needed Christ the prophet to show up. They needed to experience Christ their prophet. You know, Timothy tells us not to be surprised when, well, would someone read that for us? Timothy 2. So here we have this passage, and of course, a little later, I should have probably included it, it talks about how they will surround for themselves uh, teachers who tickle the ears. That is immediate gratification, who, 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 who preach to your, your emotions, who preach to your immediate sort of, of needs, your felt needs. Not that that's, they certainly can come into it. We're not anti-emotion, we're not anti-felt needs. But, but that's what Paul was talking about. If you read and if you studied the history that was in the first century and what Paul was against, it was these folks who, for instance, were coming into Corinth and who boasted of all the, the, the syncretism of the Corinthian culture. They came boasting all sorts of, of uh, what for them would have been modern methodologies you know, and modern confidences. Uh, the strength, you know, they were orators. You know, Paul confesses, I have not come to you as an orator. I'm not an orator, you know. Um, you, you have put too much weight on oration. That was a very or- oration-oriented society. Remember, they had the drama. There was dramatic. It was the number two city in the world in terms of the theater. Uh, it represented winning and, and power, representing uh, their, it was the second largest uh, games city, second only to Athens, where the games were being played there. And so it was a very athletic city, and they, they valued winners, they valued strength, they valued oratory skill, they valued all of this stuff, and Paul says they like their ears to get tickled. They, 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 they don't understand, it's the substance that matters. And it's not just that, it's the orthodoxy that matters. And even Paul then, remember in Corinthians, boasts that he comes boasting of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, one of the, the hallmarks for Paul of an apostolate is that he's being treated the way they treated Christ. Um, and, and that Christ wasn't conforming to what the community would have thought of as... It, what's so interesting about Corinth, it was, it was all about the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And where was the Holy, what would it look like if the Holy Spirit shows up? 
And the tendency then, as much as it is now, is to very unconsciously import values from your culture as therefore to confirm what it would look like for the spirit to show up. So if you're an entertainment culture, when does the spirit show up? If you're a populist culture, when does the spirit show up? Now, these are things that, that, again, I emphasized it last night, we aren't even conscious of this. It's just what feels natural. In other words, it's what sociologists of knowledge call the plausibility structure. What makes something plausible to you? Have you ever thought about that? I didn't say credible. I didn't say the manual in the car. You know, you, you buy a car and you, get, you go and you research the specs and specifications and you do all this stuff. That's credibility, man. You're asking, is this a credible car for me to buy? Does it, is it, does it make sense? That's credibility. What, what makes something plausible to you? Talk to me. To believe that it's, it's true. What is it that makes it plausible? You know what I mean by plausible? Where it feels right. Where it just feels right. It's comfortable to you. That's plausibility. What makes it comfortable? Are you comfortable to walk in a room and there's not many people there? A church, for instance? No, it doesn't feel comfortable to you because there's something going on in your heart that says, I judge truth by 51%. Democratization. Is that a hand? Or is that a stretch? <laughs> you were both hand. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Good question. Good thinking. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so general revelation is, is uh, what is common to society. That might be a good way to say it. So you're, you're asking a very good question. In our confession, it says that there's some things that are not biblically prescribed or biblically uh, condemned or whatever that are just the way you do things in a way that's common to society, or by the, and they call it the light of nature. And that's what you're talking about. There's no doubt that there must be a lot of use of that, and that's a good thing. So do I use a mic? What clothes do I wear? There's a lot of things that will make, that will make it more plausible that are good. So to answer your question, there, it's, it's, it's useful is my answer, I guess. Um, but how, how does it get tamed is the question. It's not that we're anti-computers or anti-Facebook. Th- those are common, what you'd call revel- general revelation or common grace or common to society. So we have Facebook. We have a, well, it's bigger than, now it's, that's passe, but, but whatever you want, social media. Now, should the church utilize social media? It's not that we're against social media, is it? But how does the scripture in fact, it really comes to this next passage. Let me answer your question there. But I want to get back to this. Be thinking about what makes something plausible to you. But look at what 2 Corinthians says, because it's a perfect segue from what you said there, Tim. He says, I ask that when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who take, we are acting, that think, I guess, we are acting according to human standards. Notice the human standards. Underline that. Indeed, we, he says, I'm not, I'm not coming in boldness appealing to the human standards of what you would respect. That's what he's saying. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards or according to what the world says is plausible. For the weapons of our warfare are not human, 
but they have divine power. Notice he says merely human, by the way, in the English. I'd like to look at the Greek there and see what's going on, because that, that may be a concession that it's not that it's anti-human either. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against what? The knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. And so that's, that's an answer to your question. It's not do we use social media. It's how does social media get tamed as to serve the interest and the values of the kingdom of God. And, but the question I'm asking is what makes something plausible to you? Is it that it's popular? Isn't that called peer pressure? We, used to call, we, we tell our kids, don't, you know, just because everybody does it don't mean you should do it. We just say that, but we, do we believe that? When, when, is, when is dress code good? It's when it's made popular. It's, it's when it's people everywhere are wearing it, and therefore it's good. Really? Why is that good? And of course, if you've lived as long as I have now, it's, we're going back retro two times since I've been alive. You know, I mean, it's just crazy how this thing moves around. What else makes it plausible? Yeah. Familiarity. And what's familiar to you? Our experience. And what experience have we had, all of us who've been born this century? We have the experience of modernity, which has very radical values that we talked about yesterday. Values that are in, in, inherently antagonistic to the values of God, many of them. Like empiricism and the stuff that we talked about. Okay, what else? So, Listen to the way Richard Lentz talks about it. Let me try to, let me try to expose this. Some of you have heard this if you've done the, the, uh, the, the uh, class on um, uh, the, the scripture. Describing modern evangelicals, that is American Western evangelicals. Now, I don't ever use the word evangelical, except for in a scholastic sense right there. So I just want you to know that. It's not a good word up here. It's not who we are up here. Um, uh, I would much prefer just classic Christianity or something. I don't know. But, uh, but I can't even come up with one. I just have to describe who we are, I guess. Orthodox sounds kind of you know, snobby, so I don't know. What, what do you say? But, but the point I'm making by evangelical, why I say I don't use it? Because evangel- what Rick Lentz is talking about, and I know this book very well and him, is he's talking about e- this, this, how it is that in the American context, the fundamental Christian beliefs that are good got wed to a social experience, uh, experiment that we call a post-enlightenment social experiment that we call America, and how those fundamental values from Scripture got syncretized to these fundamental values of modern Western democratization and transformed our religion. And so, and most of us identify with evangelicals probably in this room. You know, you think about most of the churches that you've probably been to, most of the churches that we collaborate with, they would broadly be described as evangelical. Actually, with the exception, wonderfully, of the black church. They've never identified with the black evangelical, with evangelical for the most part, even though many of them are evangelical, if you mean by that the fundamentals. So there's a whole other universe going on in there. But here, listen to what, what some, here's what scholar, people who studied our people, if you will, here's what they say about us. It is not so much that evangelicals cease to believe anything theological. 
It is rather that belief is no longer central to their identity and program. Does that resonate as true? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And not so contemporary challenge, is it? Scott Haven says, the confusion and proliferation of answers that evangelicals are giving off from the same Bible are disconcerting. So the quickest and safest way out of this uncertainty and confusion is to resort to religious experience. Sound familiar? Again, this is nothing new. The history of liberalism documents it. And we're following right after them. If if you've studied classic, historic liberalism, it all begins with experiential religion. You know, Reeves beautifully shared a story about someone who was moving away from the, the church and, and all the, the means of grace that's prefer- there. And I said beautifully. Hor- I should have said horribly. <laughs> it wasn't a beautiful story. Um, and uh, it's so true. You move towards experience, an experience which then takes you into other spiritualities. James Hunter, a, his- a sociologist studying American religion a lot, He says, in different terms, there's a shift from a concern with what the Bible says to what God is telling me. Is that the same thing, by the way? What's the difference? One's objective, good, you got it, and one's subjective. One's temporal or eternal, one is temporal. But most importantly, one is true inherently true, one is relative to me. So there's a lot of difference in what he just said. Um, Beyond this, however, there is a marked tendency towards hermeneutic subjectivism. And by the way, if you're a a theologian, you know that we're talking about what's called neo-orthodoxy, a heresy. When Hunter wrote this, I mean, it just caught a big splash because he's talking about people who take their black Bibles and hold it up and say, nothing but the Bible. That's who he's talking about. But the way they read it is heretical because it's been syncretized to all this modern, the acids of modernity and this great experiment, post-enlightenment experiment of individualism, etc. So, So let me try to give you an example of this real briefly. So what are some of those acids? Well, of course, when you talk about modern liberalism, and I don't mean political liberalism now. I'm talking about the the idea of modern liberalism, the enlightenment modern liberalism, if you know that term. Don't confuse it with the Democrats or the Barney Sanders, whoever you think of as liberal. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about theological liberalism. Um, Individualism focuses on the, the individual as the guardian of the truth. So it's all a matter of a person's own private interpretation. You ever heard of that? Now think about that. The revivalist, which is a movement that accommodated to democratization of American experience, populist in orientation, the revivalist of the Second Great Awakening argued, as the secularist did a century earlier, see it takes a historian to remind us of this, that this revelation was not properly mediated by either tradition or theology. It came directly to each individual through personal experience. As a result, the individual became the arbiter of what the Bible did and did not say. The new evangelical coalition attached little importance to the aid of the past or even the present community of interpreters in matters of biblical interpretation. External authorities were jettisoned and divine authority was internalized, a strategy not altogether different from that of the Enlightenment. 
I mean, guys, these are scathing reviews of our people, people that we identify with in us. Compare, though, that. I mean, just think about how opposite that is from the Bible. I'm trying to kind of rock your brain a little bit. Is that biblical, to be so individualistic in our way of reading the Bible? Well, listen to the Bible. How does it compare to, I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. What does that say about where you find truth? Who, who was truth deposited to there? Somebody. The community, the church. We're supposed to read it communally, not individualistically. It's just the opposite. In Ephesians, etc. What about populism or democratization? Well, you know what it says. The common sense, that's the common sense stuff. You know, many people will write. There's a great historian in Princeton um, who, who wrote uh, a, a book this thick. I had to read it on the causes of the Civil War, and he came to the conclusion that the major cause was a transference from common, what's called common realism, a philosophy called common sense realism, to enlight, in, an, in an enlightened sense to a more a German school realism. But, and, and it's all philosophically happening 200 years ago, and we're feeling it, right? It takes about that time to trickle down. But listen to what, what, what Nathan Hatch, he wrote this amazing book, Evangelicalism as a Democratic Movement. Well, this is actually an essay that presaged his book. He says, in America, the principal mediator of God's voice has not been state, church, council, confession, ethnic group, university, college, or seminary. Gosh, <laughs> he just kind of covered everything there. Who, well, who could it be, Mark? You know, Mark? I, mean, I mean, Nathan, who, who could it be? you're asking. It's been quite simply the people. The impulse to rework Christianity into forms that were unmistakably popular and democratic in at least three ways. It was audience-centered. What's the difference between this, by the way? If it's, audience, if it's not audience-centered, what would it be? Good. Intellectually open to all, what's, what would it should be? Theologically true. And organizationally pluralistic and innovative. What should it be? Organizationally, this is a harder one. Those of you who've had shepherd leader training, Mike could say it. How should the organization be judged? By its innovation and creativity? By its being regulated, we call it the regular principle, being regulated by the apostolic foundation. Now this is... This is, I mean, I don't know, about half of you are about to think about moving, right? You're thinking, I'm in a cold, aren't I? Because the plausibility going on in your head says, I've never heard this stuff before. Well, just go a little deeper and you'll see everyone's talking about it, that's historians and sociologists and theologians, if we dared to read them, and most importantly, compare it to the Bible. So what do we do next? What does Jesus say? So the way you should know something to be true is that it's commonsensical? Really? Now, I agree, there is some common sense in the world. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of common sense, actually. But not when it comes to doing theology. Theology's got to just, every time it's got to rewrite my common. Because I have original sin. What is common sense to me is, is we know the noetic effect of sin, the mental effect of sin, is that my thoughts have been stained and corrupted. My heart can't be trusted, according to David. I can't just trust my heart. That's the dumbest thing to trust. That's what led Adam right off the tree. 
And so we got to be careful. So, so think about how it compares. Common sense realism. How does that compare to enter through the narrow gate? For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. Plausibility. What seems right, plausible, can be a very wrong road. And there are many, we're told, who take it. Rather, the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. For many are called, Matthew 22 says, Jesus. Jesus told us. Many are called. That means many will hear it. Few are chosen. Many, not everybody will respond. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Can you be a part of a church that's okay about losing some people? Not in the sense that we're okay about losing people for the people's sake. I mean, I'm not going to judge how good Kevin preached necessarily by the reaction that the people. I said Kevin because I know this would never affect me. But Kevin. I'm not going to judge Kevin by the response necessarily of the people. That's one of the things in our, in our system, by the way, that demands that we don't, when we ordain people, they have to be examined. There has to be a twofold ordination. The people have to affirm them. The people have to believe that this man is their shepherd. And that's a sacred, sacred trust. And it can't be violated. That's important. But on the other hand, he can't be, this person can't be uh, uh, you know, ordained yet. He's got to be judged by a group of fellow elder peers. People who cannot evaluate him based on how it made him feel. and how, But they should be those who have, have been trained and studied in scriptures and they're going to evaluate the sermon by the scripture. You see? Very different. What about anti-intellectualism? See, part of what comes with populism is what we call anti-intellectualism. That is the idea that if it's true, it's, it feels true if it's simple. If it's easy to understand. No, come on. You've never heard that here. Anti-intellectual. All I need is my Bible. Really? Nathan Hatch again. By thus admitting the sovereignty of the audience, evangelicals, knowingly or not, undercut the structure that could support critical theological thinking, such as Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, etc. Not only did they theology proper recede in importance before the task of proclaiming the gospel, but the new ground rules for theology, opening it up to all, meant that the measure of theology would be, as ex- be its acceptability in the marketplace of ideas. This meant that uncomfortable complexity would be flattened out, that issues would be resolved by simple choice of alternatives, and that in many cases the fine distinctions from which truth alone can emerge were lost in the den of ideological battle. Now, if you had a doctor, wouldn't you want your doctor to know the difference between E. coli and, give me another one, Staphorius? Thank you. They're all, what are they? They're all... uh, bugs or whatever there are, right? What are they? Bacteria. bacteria. Thank you. They're all bacteria. Come on. Bacteria is bacteria. Now, does that make, how does that make you feel, doctor, nurse, medical profession? For me, the pastor, to stand up here in my great pontifical knowledge of medicine and tell you, bacteria is bacteria. Come on, man. Keep it simple. No, it would kill you to not know the difference. Do we believe that? Do we, do we believe that heresy kills spiritually? That can destroy marriages and people's lives? Absolutely. There's not one of the pastors here or elders here that wouldn't tell you that. Of course it does. It matters to know the difference. You know, it, it matters that there's a nuance here between 
the economic view of the Trinity versus the, you know, the Sicilian view. I mean, on and on it goes. It matters. Because those are the things that, that the doctors of souls, you, a leader, will be pulling out of a bag to tell a kid in the Sunday school class, how can you be assured that you're a Christian? And if you just give the little common sense thing, you know, did you ever pray to receive Christ? And you are. That's the people who come into this study after years of struggling with assurance and come to us as pastors, and we ask them every time. It's every single time. It's mandated here. Every pastor deals with assurance when the person comes to this church because we'd say approximately no more than half people, people who've been in the church forever who would never want to admit it, but when really asked, no, really, do you experience Christian assurance? You're no longer afraid of God's condemnation. You, you are confident that your destiny is heaven because that's something we should be able to have. And then they say, God, I don't, does anybody really get there? Well, they're supposed to. Now, yeah, we're going to struggle every once in a while with it. We're going to sin. And I'm, you know, but, but generally, yeah. And now, let's, let's mine that a little deeper, you know, Billy Bob. Tell me, what is the basis for that assurance, do you think? Ah, who told you that anyway? My Sunday school teacher. I've heard it many times. And I'm saying that to you because you're going to be a Sunday school teacher here. You got to get that stuff straight. It really does matter. Bacteria is just not bacteria. And so that's the kind of stuff that, that, that gets lost. And so you really do know theology, not by, a lot of people will say, you know, you, you, what did Jesus say? How do you know authenticity? He said, you'll know it by its fruit. But what, what do we do in a democracy? This is another, this is almost laughable. So now you're living in democratized evangelical American society. And what is the fruit you're looking for? What's, what's the fruit, huh? Growth. Yeah, you'll know it by its fruit. The the, the, the coffers are full and the, and the pews are full. Now, I'm, we're not at, gosh, anybody knows me knows I'm pro-growth. I will do anything just about to find it because I believe I'm very optimistic about this era that we live in, in this age, with the power of the Holy Spirit. I really am. And I think ordinarily churches are, should be growing. But, but, what's the fruit that Jesus was talking about? Personal transformation defined all over that place, if you look at it, love and perseverance, persevering faith. Not those who come and go. Not, you know, one of the, the big criticisms of the 19th century revival is the back door was as wide as the front door. People were coming in, had a great experience, walked the aisles, give them a year or two, and they're out the back door. What's going on in your head right now? All right, so that's the problem. Any questions? Okay, that's been all the horrible part. That's been the negative. Okay, take a deep breath. It's going to all go upstream from here. Or, or up, up. Yeah. Yeah. The agrarian thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Being out in nature, yeah. 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 
Well, let me try to. I, I hear what you. I think there's the agrarian economy definitely has some advantages. Okay, so we'll we'll acknowledge that in terms of theology, I suppose. But let me try to push back a little bit. I am. We are not anti-modern, or pro, let's say we're not anti-progress. In fact, I believe that we as Christians should be the most pro-progress. Um, when I go to, as you know, I, I go to the Adirondacks every once in a while. It's very seldom these days. But when I do, I have a religious experience usually. And I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, I've, I've cried on the side of that little beaver pond at about 5.30 on, in a May night when there's the orgy going on out there and all of these animals are hallelujahing it as they're reproducing. And it's so loud, it almost hurts your ears. And I'm not exaggerating. It's that kind of an experience. And I will cry with the power of the beauty of creation. It's just phenomenal. Now, I can go to a Broadway play and look at Les Mis. I haven't been to, I've been to three Les Mises. Not one time have I not cried. I'm so moved with the beauty of the human creativity and the art and the music. I can go and, and stare at Anabano up there. That's all creation too. That's no less creation than the trees. You see, this, this, the, the beautiful mind, I love beautiful minds. I love, love, love beautiful minds. People who are typically very eccentric and, and odd and all of that, and I just love those people. Because I see in there such a crystal clear image of creation focused on something that's so beautiful. A mathematician, I'm not a mathematician, but I just love being around mathematicians. Scientists, you know, poets. Beautiful minds. You know, that's creation. So, and, and this computer, I'm, I'm awed by it. I love this thing. Just about where, it's, it's second only to the coffee machine to me. <laughs> but no, we're very pro-progress. The difference is we want to tame its use under Christology. And, and you can be just as heretical as a farmer as you can be heretical as a city dweller. And it goes vice versa, by the way, because now it's real end to be city dwellers. You can be just as heretical as a city dweller as you can be in a suburbanite, because suburbs are now the bad word, it seems. And so we don't make any bias here. They're all civilizations, and they all got the beauty of God. And yeah, they all have their assets of modernity in different ways playing out that we have to look at and tame it. So good question. Well, let's move there. What's the solution? Well, this is one of the best passages I love to turn to. Would someone read Acts 17? By the way, my, my, my young colleagues over here really got me good yesterday with that taking 30. Look, you, you can rob my money, but do not rob my time. How much time do I have, Kevin? <laughs> Annie, somebody look. Is it, I started when? All right, I got about 30, 40 minutes. Okay, good. Yep. You're supposed to be at 10. I got you. I got you. Somebody read it. There it is. The solution? Love. Love 
the word. Be willing to work at it. Don't check your brain in the door of the church. Look at the heart of these people. Checking everything out by scripture. That's so important. Paul made every argument. Go read Paul. Go read the Gospels. They were so conscientious to write their Gospels and their, and their epistles referencing what was previously recognized as Scripture in the Old Testament. That's so important. What is required of those then who hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. I mean, this isn't something you come into casually if you understand. This is something you come into very intentionally. You examine what they hear by the scriptures. Did you hear that? Your confession of faith written 300 years says you better check that pastor out and don't believe a word until you see it in scripture. There it is. And do that as much for them as for yourself. Because when they know you're doing that, they, you know, those preachers that preach at you, it changes the way they study and it changes the way they preach when they know you're going to do that. I can tell you, there are certain people in this congregation that I just know are doing that. And I think of them often when I'm preparing my sermon. Because I say, you know, I can hear that question right now. I can hear it coming. i got to deal with that. And, 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 I don't, and I don't slight that they're doing it. Quite the contrary. In other words, it's not them. It's not personal. It's not them questioning me. It's them doing their duty to love the word and to love the office of pastor. And that's what our passage teaches. So if someone comes to me or Kevin or Craig or any of us who preach, you know, and says, you know, I'm not sure I see that in scripture. Now, I hope it comes with some deference. I hope it comes with some humility. I hope it comes with an understanding that there's a whole lot informing your brain as well as mine. And we're all wanting to be informed by the scripture. So clearly there's nothing wrong with respecting the office. So this isn't meant to be your political rump thing, you know, where everybody just criticizes the politicians because it's fun to do. No, that shouldn't be happening in the church either. But really taking the scripture seriously, which is why I love, by the way, sermon discussion. Just another little dig about that. But that's not personal. It's a real blessing to have people like that who receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, readiness of mind as the word of God, meditate, confer, hide it in their hearts, bring forth the fruit. What I would love, and I think that happens here to some degree, not to a lot of degree, I think, but it could happen more to me and all of us. What I would, wouldn't any preacher love to know that this is happening? But most importantly, wouldn't God want to know? This is incredible stuff. The Reformation was all about this. This was one of the fundamental things that, that drove the Reformation, is that, that the culture had moved away from a word-focused spirituality, or they had lost that third mark, the prophetic confessional mark of the church. We're going to talk about confessionalism now. I'm going to skip over this. There's some great quotes here. So what is our ambition here? This is You can find this in our five... Uh, this is... Like you see, today we're taking those five values and we're mining one of them at a time. So what we say is, would someone read that? Confessional Christ our prophet, it, what's our ambition? We aspire to hear God's voice in a robust appreciation and experience of biblical theology and expositional preaching. 
Whereas the scripture is our only rule of faith and practice, we want to read and interpret the scripture with the consensus of the church that is passed down from every age and place through the use of confessions of faith. Our consensus is reflected in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is consistent with other creeds used by other denominations that MA is associated with. I took it off the MA site, sorry. We strive to apply our beliefs to all of life. The dogma, in other words, is the drama. Here's some of the things you look for. You know, the humble submission to Scripture. Willingness to biblically regulate worship versus just do worship based on what people want it to be, necessarily. It's not anti-people, by the way. A high regard for the Christian Scriptures is the only rule of faith and practice, i.e., we, a cessationist view. We don't, we don't believe in continuing revelation, whether it's through personal dreams and experiences or through traditions. Only the Scripture. That's what it means to be confessional. A high regard for the scriptures uh, in preaching that is expositional and Christ-centered, etc. Right doctrines from right texts. It's not enough to say right doctrines. It's going to diminish your view of scripture if you see five pastors saying five different things from the same text. That's what tempts you to say what? It's only a matter of one's own interpretation. You don't believe that there's a real way to mine the scripture and get a definitive word from God from it. That's what's, that's what's happening when we casually take sermons and say, well, as long as he says the right stuff, it's okay. No, it isn't. Because we're undermining the, the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Christ to speak to us through it. Even if what he's saying is right. Or she. A culture that is careful to consistently teach and apply biblical theology to the friend of Christian life. A culture of humble submission to Scripture that is less prone to be blown away by every wind of doctrine, etc. And so, I won't, you know, the whole purpose of this, Voin Perthus makes this point in an elaborate way, is lordship. It's that Christ would be first in our life. That's what it is. What we're after here is Christ speaking to us and carefully regulating it from the scripture itself. Um, there's some confusions here. I put this in here. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, and I'll tell you why. Because it's all online in our introduction to uh, biblical interpretation that we've been doing this year in Sunday school. So knowing that most of you have been part of that, it would be horribly redundant. But I'm just going to say, just for the sake of memory, just in a, in a line, what these all are. But here they are again. When we talk about in, in, um, in what we call biblical inspiration, we don't believe that Paul is inspired, though God used Paul. We don't believe that we're inspired, though God will in some way speak to us, when we talk about Scripture, that which is a rule of faith and practice, it's the words. We call it verbal plenary inspiration. That's the classic, historic, orthodox understanding of what inspiration is. It's where the kernel of truth is found. It's in the Scripture, the words. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes with what I just said, but that's the gist. And the reason that's important is because the, the whole liberal tradition that we would be opposed to is a tradition that will use the word to rediscover Paul's experience. And therefore, it's a demythologizing tradition. Well, let's, let's get back to his real experience. Forget about all this stuff about resurrection and miracles and things like that, because that was myth. That's the myth language that they used. But we're going to go through the myth language of Scripture into Paul's experience, and that's going to become our, our truth. That's liberalism. Or neo-orthodoxy says, I'm going to be inspired. Christians, do. this is what evangelicals tend to be. You go to a Bible study and you go around a room, let's read the scripture. What does that mean to you, Reeves? God's 
It means to me that, you know, I'm supposed to go to Alabama. Great. That's creative. How did you get that? Oh, you know, see the word. It's got an acronym that's similar to, to, to Alabama. There, there it was. The acronym was there. It's a sign. No, we call that continuing revelation, and you're listening to your heart. You think you're inspired. No, the scripture is inspired. And on it goes. This idea of God breathed, it's, it's, it's words that are used throughout the Old Testament to describe creation event. The scriptures are created by God. That's what inspiration means. And that's going to really make a difference to read, between how you, you read scripture. On the one hand, there is a human element, a confluence of the human. It's going to come in the Greek language. It's going to come in first century world and culture. And we're going to believe that God adopted that for the purpose of getting the truth onto the scriptures. But if it doesn't get to the scriptures, it's not supposed to be there. We're not going to add to the scriptures by our own cultural studies of Rome. It's going to let the scripture speak. What it doesn't say is important as what it does say. And so that's the kind of thing. You can read through it. Um, So that's one challenge or confusion. And I talk about it all here and you can read through it. The next confusion is the Holy Spirit. People have a huge problem with this today, it seems. But it's the idea that, that, that the Holy Spirit, when Christ talked to the disciples, and remember, he was only talking to the 12, that's important, the people who are going to be the apostolic foundation, and he says that I will leave, but the Holy Spirit will come and will, will teach all those things that, I, that, I, that are remaining to be taught to you, in so many words is what he said. And Christians read that, of course, we're individualistic Americans. We don't read that corporately as speaking to the founders of the church, qua church. We read that as if we are sitting in that little circle. And he's talking to me saying, what? Listen to the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the Holy Spirit? And how do I distinguish the Holy Spirit from my heart and my spirit? Because they are distinct, you know. You see the problem? And so there's a real confusion. No, what he was talking about was the Holy Spirit given to the apostles in order for them to inscripturate. The result of his promise is that we've got Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and John and all of those things with the authority as from Christ. That's the key. All right? So there's a little what the Spirit does. Now, we do believe, though, in the, we, we do believe, though, in the Spirit. Okay, we believe in the Holy Spirit, people. And we mean that really, because we know that we are not capable of receiving the word of God, except that there's a miracle in us. We must be made new creatures, new hearts, minds that's biases are undone in a way that I can hear it and listen to it. And it's not to suggest that God doesn't use the spirit through providence. Yes, dreams can be significant, but I'm not going to interpret them in a one-to-one correlating way. Dreams can be something that, that moves me to search after God, and I will t- point you to the scripture with that dream. And on it goes. Very quickly, I'm going through this just to kind of remind you, but again, it's all there. We talk about it more uh, on these videos that you can listen to. By the way, that's not a new problem. This was the problem that the Reformers were dealing with in the Anabaptist tradition. And, John, and here's a quote from John Calvin that would... I think, help you see how he dealt with it. And finally, there's a confusion about church, the the role of the church. Most people today that we call evangelicals don't struggle with being the Roman Catholic church, although it's moving in that direction again. In other words, most people today that we're talking to 
are not the people who are thinking that God continues revelation through the church, speaking ex cathedra, the infallibility of the church, papal decree, etc. But that's one of the problems. It's not that the church is revelatory, it's illuminatory. And on the other hand, though, a, a low, it's a low view of the church. The other problem with the, the church is what it does do. What it does do is we remember that we are, we are commanded to read the Bible communally with our brothers and sisters of every age. What, I mean, just practically speaking, what better way to get beyond our cultural blind spots than to read the Scripture with other cultures? Every culture, C.S. Lewis said, every culture has a blind spot. Every culture has a disease. He says, the best way to overcome that disease is to read old books. And he said, now, if I could read future books, I would, because there's gonna, that would help as well, but I can't because I'm not there yet. Duh. But see, that's the idea. Reading Scripture with the church, and the church doesn't just exist in 2000, where are we, 16. Yeah, we read it with that church too, communally here. But we also read it with the church of our fathers and mothers and all the way back. And that's called confessionalism. Forming belief about what Scripture teaches or consensus about what Scripture teaches by, re- by re- reading the Scripture with the church of every age. And how do we do that? The church leaves for us this beautiful testimony of how they interpret Scripture in what we call creeds or confessions. And so when we read our Bible we want to read our Bible with a creed over my left hand and the Bible in my right hand. That's the image I want you to have. I want every pastor who preaches to read the Bible and to do their exegesis and to have in their minds, if not visibly on their computer or here, a creed that says, now let me, let me compare what I'm seeing this scripture teach with what the consensus of the church for 2,000 years has said is what the scriptures generally preach, teach. And if I'm off the reservation, well, I know that you did not come to hear Preston Graham. You came to hear Jesus Christ, didn't you? And Preston's not Christ, mediatorial. The church is Christ, mediatorial. Therefore, you've come to hear Christ as Christ is being mediated in, with, and through the church of 2,000 years. And therefore, Preston's personal and private interpretations are going to get dumped. And I'm going to preach what I see Scripture saying in conformity to what the, script, what the church has universally said in the Orthodox tradition that the Scriptures principally teach. So what's a confession? It's all right here. A confession is basically a consensus. The first chapter of the confession, by the way, our confession, will tell you, don't, I'm not your rule of faith and practice, says Westminster. That's the first chapter. Don't listen to me if you have a controversy. We're just a church interpreting Scripture. Listen to Scripture. Go back to Scripture every time. Go back to Scripture. So that's confessionalism. Um, so here you go through. Uh, let me get through this real quick. Here, here's different views. You can look at this. The relationship between Scripture and tradition and individuals. The Roman Catholic, you see this sort of line. And by the way, a Roman Catholic is the one that drew these up for me. As a professor I had in, at Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, historian, and he said, "Here, here's how I view it." And I look at him, "Wow, you're right on. I think that's right." So you have the scripture, the tradition, and us, as in we get scripture through the church, 
from Scripture. You have the Anabaptist Scripture to us. That's what most evangelicals are today. This was the historic Anabaptist position. Most people, and I mean there are many Presbyterians like this too, are Anabaptist in their understanding of hermeneutics. Let, let, me, let me just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rile you a little bit right now. You ready? If you had the choice between your Bible and the church, what would you choose? A gospel five-mark church, what would you choose? You had the choice. I would say most of your instincts would say Bible every time. That would be a wrong answer biblically. First of all, you don't even have your Bible. You do know that, unless you can read Hebrew and Greek. But second of all, you have a translation of that Bible. But second of all, when did the church get the Bible? I mean, the first written, uh, you know, we, we had a long history before Moses. Now, depending on your view, it could have been thousands and thousands of years going back to Adam. It was an oral tradition. Then you had Moses, and you had the Bible written in a scroll that was preserved in the Holy of Holies that only he could read, or the priest. And that went on for years and years and years. In fact, not until Gutenberg, practically, which was, when was that, 1500s? Not until Gutenberg was it even possible to disseminate a Bible to people. And even then, that was, such a, that was like to every church if you're lucky now, not every individual. I mean, think about that. Are we better off having the Bible? Now, I'm being really provocative right now. I'm going to say yes. In fact, our confession will uh, strongly encourage that everyone should be reading their Bibles. And it is a great gift of God that we have our Bibles. And I'm not, I have no problem with your Bible. So it's on record. I had no problem with everybody having a Bible. In fact, I would prefer everyone have a Bible, and I'd prefer that we translate that Bible into every language just to get it on the record, and I'd prefer everyone read it all the time. Got it? It's how we read it. Do we read it with our church? Do we read it in a communal way? That's the problem. And so this is the third, what he calls the uh, Protestant uh, magisterial. Now, by magisterial... He's talking about, in his day, that what has the authority to, uh, to authorize a creed, if you will. And, of course, if you're in a nation-state context, that would have been, say, Scotland or England or whatever, working as lord over the, as head of the church, the queen or king, right? Now, we, we would say the magisterial today would be what we'd call General Assembly, Presbytery, the denomination. But there's a denominational thing going here. So you have tradition. Let's call that the, the tradition that goes all the way back to, to the apostles through time, Heidelberg, you know, you go, you know, Nicene Creed, da 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 all the way through. That's tradition. Westminster and the content of Westminster is a tradition. The magisterial would be a particular denomination. And then there's us. And that's how we're reading the Bible. We're reading the Bible listening to this, going directly, and notice where us is, individual. You have all three. You're getting the scripture, and you're giving the tradition, and the magisterium just happens to be which denomination of the tradition are you listening with. You see that? And we affirm that third method. Ecclesial spirituality, in other words, the use of creeds. You know, it's very interesting how the scripture talks about follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith love which which are Jesus Christ what pattern is he talking about think about what a pattern represents it means that there is a agreed upon pattern that is 
he, he, you know, whenever, my kids hate that word. Oh, gosh, I hate this word. Um, I mean, this might be one of the, this is the word they tell me they hate the most. Because I, whenever I was about to, to start doing something that was like a, a, a little teaching moment, I'm seeing a pattern here. Did your parents ever say that to you? I'm seeing a pattern here. It's not just an isolated event. It's a pattern. What, is, what am I saying by the word pattern? What do you, what, what, tell me what I'm saying. It's repeated, systematic, systemic. Okay, that's what he's talking about. That's a pretty good interpretation of this word in Greek. That's why it's a training pattern. Follow that which has been systematized, that which has been repeated, that which has been passed down over and over again. A tradition. Follow the traditions. Now, what traditions would you follow? Well, I'm gonna th- let me tell you my secret. There's two secrets. I mean, I'm going to make it really simple. This is every other pastor in this room is going to feel uncomfortable with this an elder because it's going to be too simplified. And I just talked to talk about how it's got to be more nuanced. And so I'm going to be violating my own point right now. I'm going to make it really simple for you. Number one, what is it? Sola Scriptura. I will not listen to a tradition. I will just take it and put it aside. I mean, I still could learn some stuff from it. But it's just too much work to, dif- to differentiate between what is Scripture and what is continuing revelation in that tradition. So number one, when I tell my kids to go, when I tell people to go, I said, look, whatever you do, go to a church who has a high view of Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice in your life. And it understands what that means. Number one. Number two, and the reason I said number one is the same reason our confession. You know, it starts not with the doctrine of Christ. It starts with the doctrine of Scripture and Revelation. Because then everything we know about God, the Trinity, and Jesus Christ comes from that scripture. So we got to get straight. Where are we going to learn about God? We're going to start in scripture. And then secondly, it's going to be Christ-centered. Christ, 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 Christ. Be careful. Trinitarian spirituality today is not what you might think. That happened in the WCC about uh, 60 years ago. World Council of Churches, and Trinitarian spirituality meant that we affirm the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit working through all sorts of religions and all sorts of ways and all over the world. It was really an affirmation of the Spirit in a very non-Christocentric way. It was a movement against Christ. Now, that's one of those nuances, by the way, and you're going, oh, come on, you're, that's huge. If you're doing missions, is it to preach Christ or is it to build huts? Huts is good. But we're not going to equate building huts with the gospel. You see? So there's your, there's, that's simple. Scripture, Christ. And that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, usefulness of creeds. I'll go through the basis of Christian unity, ecclesiastical discipline, basis for evaluation. Man, you don't want ruling. If, I wouldn't go to a church where there's not a written creed either, by the way. That'd be a third one, I guess. Because if it's not written, it's the pastor who's the creed. And I know pastors pretty well. Don't trust them. Okay, they're sinners, just like you. And they got pet projects and things like that, just like you do. Don't trust them as the basis for how you're going to be governed in that church. So there you go. A basis for evaluating truth from false teaching, to preserve the faith of our fathers, characteristics of confessional church. I'm not going to go through that. You can read it. Somebody asked yesterday our confessional history. Well, here it is, and it's really, really short. And I call it our families. I want to emphasize this. We talked about it last night, but I want to say it again. There is different grades of unity. 
the, I think the predominant, the first level grade is the spiritual union of Christ, the Trinity, how we are united into the community of the Trinity by virtue of that sacred, spiritual, may, albeit mystical union that we have with Jesus Christ, qua, say, John 17. Um, there's that kind of unity where we could say, you are my brother, because you profess, I mean, the, the early creed, remember, was the essential, according to First John, was what? That people, they profess Jesus Christ as Lord. That very fundamental, basic, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm, I don't know if that person's born again and going to, I, I can't be a judge, but generally we start there. And that goes all the way back to what I'd call the, creed, the, the, uh, the, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, those Christological councils. And so in some ways you can trace unity and the development of unity through the, the history of councils. How they began with clarifying, you know, what are the apostolic main teachings and particularly related to who the, per, the Trinity, and then it went to Christ. Go fast forward in the Reformation, we get into soteriology and the whole doctrine of how one is to to be assured of salvation, etc. Then it gets into doctrines of the church and how we view the church. All of those are important. It's grades. I want to see unity all the way down the line. Don't you? The more, the better. Let's, the more we can agree, the more we're unified around our agreement. So that's great. Let's go to Scripture and study and keep duking it out. It's a good thing. But at each, I'm just giving you the overview. At each level, there's a level of participation I can and cannot do. I can participate with this person way up here, that first level, doing mercy in my city. I'm doing it right now. And there's some people probably we're doing it with. I don't know what, what the rest of their creed is, but we all share Jesus Christ and a passion for the gospel, even. I can go one step further. You know? But we have some very different ecclesiologies. We have neo, neo-denominationalism in there which is not a, a classic denomination, but a new kind of denomination that we've talked about last night a little bit. We've got old denominations. We've got, you know, cult, you know all kinds of denominations. That's cool. And I'm not going to do some things. I'm not probably going to want in some of these areas to be in a governing system with a, a, a spiritual government system with them because we would have very different ways of governing, listening to very different sources in the way we govern. You know, the source of the Spirit speaking to me or the source, you know, or both and or whatever it is. So, so again, it's really cool because what I want you to hear us say, I mean, I'm not going to go through all this in great detail, but what I want you to hear is that it's not either or. Um, way down the line, to give you an illustration, let's go from, you know, you start with what? Sola Scriptura in Christ is Lord. And you just keep going down, down, down through all these different layers. You could go through the sociological doctrine of salvation, go through the doctrine of the church, etc. Go down here. Somewhere down there we're going to talk about something like women's ordination, let's say. And you've heard me say, you know what? Really? Um, if you, I, it, where, where do we say I can't be a denomination with you is my point. That's another level of unity. And I've gone on record saying that wouldn't be for me an issue one way or the other. I would want to know that we do treat the scripture seriously with respect to, that's just me, by the way. It's not my session. That's not maybe, the, I'm not speaking for anybody but me. But for me, I could be in a denomination with David Wells and John Stott and some of these people who still recognize the complementarian view of women and men, but see a role play going on in the life of the family in the church. That's just me. Guys that were everything but liberal, for instance. 
but, but it's a good argument, though. I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying. So you see what's going on. You go from here down to here, down to here, down to here, down to here. And what I'm trying to teach you is you make decisions about how we can practice our unity based on the inherent logic of where we're unified. Let me say that again. We make decisions about how we can practice unity based on the inherent qualities of what it is that unifies us. And off you go. So here, you can read it. I don't need to go through it and read it myself. There's a family tree, and it's pretty self-explanatory. You can zip through it. It's very cursory, but here's our family tree. And what really distinguishes the tree that we're on is the five solas. Sola fide, we're saved by grace through faith alone, rather than faith plus. Sola gratia, we are saved through faith alone by grace alone. Salvation is entirely a gift of God. It, it's it's got to intervene into our lives. There's a whole lot of doctrines that go with these solas, by the way. I'm not getting into all those. Sola Christus, our access to God is through Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus through Mary or Jesus through a priest. And sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be all glory and honor, rather than in any way glorifying that which is other than God. That's really crucial. The Westminster Assembly, I tell you about, now we're, look what I just did. I went from Nicaea all the way down to Presbyterianism in America. Okay? There's a little, uh, did I show you that little picture of the, of the, where is that picture in here where it has all the people in it? Classroom. There it is. Uh, there, there's a good example of how ridiculous it would be to forget that we're just, I mean, there we are, you know, and can somebody read that, that little caption? It's a fun caption. So this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. <laughs> now, the other person says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. Yeah. Sometimes that's the way we, we talk about our denominations, isn't it, in our churches. I hope we don't talk about CPC that way. You know, I do not think that CPC's got it all together. And I don't think that the PCA's got it all together. And I don't think the reform movement's got it all together. And I don't think that, and we can just keep going backwards. You know, but we do do the best we can to discern what is that body of content of what we believe is the orthodox faith, and we want to live by it. Denominationalism is a curse and a blessing. The blessing is that the only alternative is, is imperialism. When one church says, we are the church of Jesus Christ, which means everybody else that's not doesn't agree with us and can't submit to what we're doing is outside the church. That was sadly what Roman Catholicism did at Trent when they excommunicated everyone that was not willing to submit to the practices of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Denomination was a concession, kind of like divorce. It's a horrible thing. We hate denominationalism, but we love it. I've had to intervene in a marriage where divorce was a really great gift where her husband was literally pointing a gun at her one night. And two elders went in there and robbed her from that house. Divorce was a concession that might have saved her life. Right? This side of heaven, Jesus concedes to divorce. He doesn't prescribe it. He concedes to it. As a necessary thing, this side of perfection. I kind of see denominationalism like that. We all want to be one denomination. If, you, if that's not in your heart, something's wrong with you, man. We all can't wait for that. But you're not gonna, we can't violate conscience to get there. We can't force David to violate his conscience. And that's what Romans 14 was all about. You can go read Romans 14 later where Paul says, look, 
okay, Apollos, you church wor- can worship there in the Corinth, and the, the, you know, the church of Paul can worship there in these little household churches, but don't forget your one church. You're not one church, no church. You're two churches, one church of Corinth. That's huge. And that's how you get denominationalism. Okay, I've got to stop, but there's one thing I want to show you um, to try to... So there's some other good stuff here about confessionalism. Um, but the one thing I wanted to do here... Go ahead and read through. And this, I give you a summary. It's pretty self... What, in Westminster, here's some of the major points of Westminster. But I've kind of covered them already indirectly. Um, one little handout that you don't have that I wanted to tell you you have... If you go to the website, you don't have to do it now. You you have this handout. And um, this is where I wanted it to speak practically to you. And so let me pile it up a little bit and show you what I'm talking about. How do you take everything we just said about confessionalism and make that work for you as a leader leading, say, a small group Bible study or whatever? Um, And here's that handout. The first part of it will tell you this is a really basic method of how you interpret Scripture with the use of a confession, okay? And here's the most important thing I want to say. If you think me telling you this is, or even going through our intro to Bible interpretation is going to make you be a good uh, Bible interpreter, man, that, that's something you've got to hone in for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, okay? So the, the title is just called From Bible to Bible Study. Um, so the most important thing I want to say to you is... You should learn Bible method, not because you think you can do it by yourself, but because it's going to help you evaluate commentaries and and Bible study uh, tools. You're going to have questions in your head that you might know to look for. So clearly you start with prayer, get a couple of versions. Remember, the Bible is not a version. So getting, there's three kinds, there's major types of versions, ones that are dynamic, that are sort of, you know, they're trying to interpret a lot for you. Some that are very wooden. I would try to find at least one wooden and one semi-dynamic. <laughs> I mean, not the Living Bible necessarily, but the uh, some you know, uh, you know, ESV is is a little more wooden. RSV is even more wooden. You know, NIV is about as din- dynamic as I want to get. But the point I'm saying is, you you get a couple of and and you notice how they change and where they change. That's your clue. There's some word there that people are trying to understand. So you have access to several versions. You pick a passage, key there is you try to have, it's not about, expositional preaching is not line-by-line preaching. That is one of the biggest myths in the world. Oh, I bet you, people know that I'm a, and we're at expositional preaching, and so a lot of people from the Reformed Church particularly come in, man, I bet it took you 10 years to get through Romans. That would be bad exegesis. No, the Bible speaks not in words, not in sentences, but paragraphs, or what we even call pericopes. Units self-contained units within a greater unit. Sometimes it's hard to figure it out, but that's what you're looking for. You do a study of the whole book in your passage. Very important. Every book has a purpose. Know the purpose. Know the circumstances. Here are the questions. Um, immediate context. Sentence flow. How does this, how does, we call it sentence, how does the flow of the passage go? Where, where's the, what's the subordinate clauses? What's the main clauses? That's important. Word studies. Theme comparisons. There's their major theme. And now go to the scripture elsewhere and figure out what that theme, how the scripture teaches that theme. I know I've run out of time now. And then you go to the uh, biblical the, uh, the covenant. What covenant it is in. This is a whole lesson in our interp. But there is a covenant. Every passage has a covenant. 
And whatever it's doing, it's explicating that covenant. You'd need to know that. Step one, two, etc. And then what you would do, main point, compare your doctrine to what the church, there's your confessionalism, number K. And then you go to the significance. Don't confuse meaning with significance. It's significant in a way that's by inference from the meaning. But don't confuse meaning from significance. And then you put it into a Bible study. And here you go. A good study is going to have a point of contact, an introduction. Let's get you in the, the world. It's a thematic sort of a thing, typically. What's the theme and how can you get people thinking about it? Then you have what's called investigative questions. Investigation questions is not meaning. This is the biggest mistake you make, and I'm going to stop right here so you'll have full 10 minutes. This is the biggest mistake that you make in a small group Bible study, is you ask people who are ignorant to tell you what it means, and you're making them, you're making them be wrong. Investigative questions is things, not yes-no questions, not what does it mean questions. It's the question of, do you see any words here used often? How do you see that word being used? In other words, they're, they're actually investigating the language itself. Uh, do you see, a, have, you, have you ever noticed this theme somewhere else in the Bible? You see what you're doing? We're calling it research. Research is not making judgments yet. You're researching with them. And help them research. Help them look at the scripture and say, hey, make an observation with them. Do you observe anything here? Do you observe here? Do you observe? What do you observe there? Then you do discovery. Now, discovery is where the leader, I think, needs to really jump in and say, okay, here's what the scriptures principally teach here. And help them discover that. Do you see it? Do you see why? Make the case for why this is what this scripture teaches. And then, of course, so what? And that's where you say, okay, so what does it mean to me? What's the significance? There's some language about that, but I'm going to stop. That's all in your, in your handout. Um, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, you've been very patient. You, you're going to take a 10-minute break and come back.